Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded at the PW offices in New York City. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the Editor-in-Chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com, and you can find us on Twitter at, at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr, pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on iTunes and on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash pwcomicsworld. All right, this week on More to Come. Uh, goodbye, Stan the Man Lee. Right? Um, Abrams cancels Suicide Bomber graphic novel. Uh, Con Report, Anime NYC, and Cab 2018. And uh, DC Black Label update. So let's get right to it. Um, Stan Lee, yeah, well, uh, passes away at ninety five. Yeah. Uh, it's been you know we've been uh, away. There was the holiday, so yeah. we haven't convened in a couple weeks, more than a couple weeks normally. Yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, we all knew it was coming, but it still seemed really, really, really sad. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is. It's it's it's, it's really sad. Uh, what's been obviously, I mean, sort of gratifying is. Um, you know, really, the tributes to 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 him, uh, the remembrances, the reminiscing. Um, you know, I met him uh, very briefly in two thousand nine, and you know, like a lot of people, I immediately put up a photo of me and Stan Lee. <laughs> I mean, that's what you do. Yeah, mine's uh, so crappy. I feel really cheated, but anyway. Uh, um, you know, it's not the greatest picture in the world, but it's the greatest picture I have of, of me Stan with Lee. Stan Lee. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, um, look, you know, I, I started reading Marvel comics in the mid 1960s. I was about 12 years old. Um, they, they were the coolest thing I had ever encountered. You know, maybe, maybe reading about baseball was kind of there. I was kind of into that. I was a nerdy kid. Calvin and I are so much alike. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love reading about baseball. Uh, I love reading about baseball in the 1950s, believe it or not. But what I really loved were Marvel Comics, uh, yeah. and Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And, um, I got, to, in 2009, I, when he was doing that Ultimo, uh, thing. Oh, the for, Ultimo. For I was going to say, which project of Stan's was it yes, that you exactly. got to talk to him about? And, uh, I got to interview him about it, and, uh, he was, it was an absolute delight. I was starstruck and thrilled. Uh, and, uh, you know, I told him, I, I said, you know, um, you, and Jack Kirby are the reason why I'm sitting in front of you interviewing you right now. And he seemed to get a big kick out of that. Sure he did. So uh, we're going to miss you, Stan. You changed American popular culture. Um, and it's not just us. And it's not just the comic book community in the United States. I mean, tributes are coming in from all over the world and from places as unlikely as The Economist magazine. You know, mm-hmm. Stan, what the, when he died, uh, it, it knocked... Um, our politics off the yeah. top trends on Twitter. You know, yeah. I mean, it was kind of like uh, an amazing shared experience yeah. of the kind that we used to have in the good old days. Where, like, you're you're right. Everybody put up their picture of them and Stan. I mean, yeah. my entire timeline. Everybody had a picture with Stan. And um, you know, I mean, I don't want to say the world stopped, but I mean, it was huge. It was really a huge, huge, huge story that Stan. And you know, I, I have to say, his longevity in, in you know, in yeah. his hardiness into well into his nineties is really something that, um, you know, inspired people. And I, I, I mean, he had so many lives, so many lives, and 
Um, certainly his role as the cameo star of the MCU, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that, well. that absolutely put him in front of a new audience, yeah. you know. Well, without a doubt. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think that's what contributed a lot to, to his beloved status. I mean, I remember going to the, uh, to Book Expo a few years ago, and one of Stan's Pact's projects was that line of like <laughs> YA novels that yes. was coming out from Hyperion, I believe. And uh, they had a whole big panel with him and Stuart Moore, the uh, the writer, the mm-hmm. co-writer <laughs> yes. of the of the <laughs> novels. And uh, you know, it was a packed room, and and I was amazed because when the the, the Q and A came, the kids got up and were asking Stan questions, and I mean, it really, mm. you know, it was very genuine that that this this nonagenarian had, uh, you know, connected with these these young kids yeah. and yeah. these children, and they they knew who he was, and I mean, you know, doubtless it's because of the movies, but uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's it really was more than that. The movies and the legend around him. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's. It is not too much to say that many kids do genuinely love comics. And I came on the scene at a time when San had basically retreated into legendum and selling his name for various projects. Yes. Um, the point at which, you know, I don't have a picture of Stanley because I didn't want to pay $300 for it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so a very different era. But, but, you know, even as a kid, when I didn't know anything about comics history, everybody knew about Stanley. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's the way it is now, that it's not just because of the movies it's because stan lee's force of personality and deep presence in the history of comics together absolutely have made him into a self-legendized well, there, legend yeah, i mean that's it i mean honestly there you can't I, listen there's been a lot of controversy and even you know i mean stan wasn't cold in his grave before people started criticizing him and a lot of people criticized that criticism but i pointed out that he was a huge figure and i i, I mean i think he, he was. was of the kind of stature where it's fair to start the debate you know ongoing and there's well, you know I, yeah. I think what but, you're getting but, but, is but, a, yeah, but before well, you get to yeah. that let me let me say so again. yeah before let, but let me just talk a little bit about you know my experiences with Stan and and you know like Calvin I uh, read the bullpen bulletin pages you know I yeah. mean Stan was no longer writing the comics but every comic was Stan Lee presents yeah and uh, you know those bullpen bulletin pages were just genius they were sheer genius and um, I think they show like Obviously, there's so much controversy about him, how he treated his artists, and you know, with Kirby and Ditko and what they did. You know, now all gone, all passed away. I, I, we lost Stan, we lost Ditko, we lost Harlan Ellison this year. So, yeah, you know, Joe a lot Simon of, the other year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, our our nerd heritage really, uh, you know, diminished this year. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, Kate's absolutely right that that persona that breeziness that you know that knowing it was one of a kind nobody wrote yeah. like Stan I mean you can imitate it but nobody had his glibness with it the voice of Marvel I mean look a lot of even I wrote an obituary for Publishers Weekly and you know and what, look and I said also uh, you know Stan got a lot of criticism for perhaps taking a little too much credit and if you read some of the accounts maybe from some Journals that don't often write about comics, or certainly don't write about comics history, uh, you could you could get the impression that Stanley invented everything that right. ever came out of Marvel. And I took pains to make sure that he helped. He co-created. He was a collaborator with very talented artists and writers on these iconic heroes that have become so much. Big. I mean, they were they were big among my little 
kid set in the 1960s, but there was so much bigger now. Right. Um, but he came along at a time in the 1960s in some ways that's very similar today. The comics world were changing. The mm-hmm. comics audience were, was changing. And publishers were desperately looking around trying to figure out what was going on. The newsstand was changing. It was getting harder and harder to get stuff on the newsstands. Magazines were making newsstands a lot more money than comics were. So it's very interesting that we're in a period now where I think what you're seeing is uh, for Stan to pass away now, it really does – uh, give us a sense of what the world was like when he when he changed everything because of that or when he helped to change everything right, right. but yeah. he became the face of that change regardless mm-hmm. of how you know how someone misstates how you know his role in creating a particular yeah. character well nobody was able to market himself you know as the same way Stan would no, I mean it was both bombastic and self-deprecating at the same time and, and, and that it was is totally natural to and him absolutely and he was genuinely funny which yeah. was oh, not yeah, the very, case very with witty. DC Comics they were stiff they were corny they were uh, predictable and conventional. Marvel Comics in the 1960s were a revelation. They were so different. They were so fun. They were different and lively. And it w- they were lively because of the voice of Stan Lee. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that the 60s were a bad time for DC Comics. Before and after it, they had a lot more to offer. Although I, I will say that um, I believe that... Um, Sergeant Rock was hitting some of its stride right about then, but that Sergeant was Sergeant Rock it. was pretty good, yeah. That, yeah, but anyway. But, but the but, superhero but, comics. But the superhero comics were, it was a dark time at DC, yeah. and and Marvel stepped into the market. And even, you know, the fact that Stan's sheer force of personality blinded people who didn't know anything about comics into imagining he was the only man in the room does not take away from all the things he did in that room. Yeah, you know, and I, I think some of it is that Stan didn't really you know he didn't ha- he didn't have to say, I don't I don't think he had to say I created all this. I don't think he ever did say that to <laughs> no, be honest. He you know, he just sort of assumed and he went <laughs> Right, exactly. I think he just had such a huge personality that he overshadowed. I mean, certainly, you know, Steve Ditko was the anti-Stan who mm-hmm. wanted no attention whatsoever and you know, hid away from the world. And you know, Kirby was a very charismatic person himself and obviously had a track record as a creator that dwarfed Stan's. Yeah. And um, you know, I think, you know, and it, and I'm going to be honest, Mark yeah. was all that Stan had. Yeah. You know? And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it Stan that actually put names on the splash pages that, to open comics? Because they did, they weren't always like that. Right, right. And Marvel was one of the first comics I started reading as a kid that I noticed that they, the artist's names were on there. And that's when I immediately latched on to the work of Jack Kirby because, you know, his name was there. Right. But very often right. comics in those periods. You didn't really see much about yeah. who was making them. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was Stan or Julia Schwartz, but okay, you know, that, I mean, it was yeah, certainly of be, that. Yeah. It was a, certainly a Silver Age thing, but but. Um, but then he would throw in the nicknames, right? You, you know? know. But I mean, the bullpen. I mean, like you guys yeah. are saying. I mean, there was nothing like the bullpen, and it, it. You know, Calvin, when you started reading them, and then when I started reading them, uh, you know, you immediately just got sucked in oh, to that completely. world of, the, of this whole thing of Jolton confession. Know. I'm going to make a catch confession right now. Mm. Elementary school, 1960s. When kids would go out to lunch, <laughs> I would sneak back in and go through people's desks to see because you know you was there weren't comic shops, so you getting back issues, you know, was really tough. So I you would read go, other people's comics. I would go in and I would kind of steal them. I would bring them back, but I would kind of go in and steal them to see if they had stuff that I didn't have because I everybody was sneaking comics into the classroom. I mean, you knew 
everybody had comics somewhere stashed away. Right. So, and more than likely or not, they were Marvels. Right. After a certain yeah. point. <laughs> because we were really down on people that read DC after about the late 60s. <laughs> right. I mean, it was, just, it was just that, that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the guy became the face of America. It really is. But, you know, he was also very, very ambitious in that, you yeah. know. And I mean, I, one of the things that I pointed out, you know, with some of my writing after he passed was that, uh, you know, a lot of obituaries pointed out the fact that Stan thought, you know, like his real name was Stanley Lieber and he mm-hmm. took this Stan Lee pseudonym because he thought he was going to be a serious novelist yeah. and he didn't want to sully his, you know, <laughs> serious <laughs> yes. reputation with his comic book work. And, and supposedly he actually has a novel coming out le- next year. I heard something you about know, that, yeah. Which, um, you know, co-written by, of course. Oh, but, yeah. um, well, I thought maybe it might be something from his archives. Yeah. So. Well, now that would be so cool. But, um, you know, Stan didn't need to write a, a novel because his whole life was his story. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it was a story. I, you know what? I, I said this too, but you know, when Stan first got on Twitter, it was really obviously him and he would just tweet and it was really delightful. You know, it was just him at home and mm. kind of, you know, now I shall do the dishes and, you know, in the most <laughs> glorious manner, true believer. I mean, he really, was, it really was doing this, you know, Stanley, you know, kind of personality stuff about just being an old man at home with his wife and, and it was really charming and um you know uh it, the, the, but then obviously there was the you know the dark times we've talked about them a bit here on the podcast yeah. and, um uh that you know his life was filled with people who did not have his best interests at heart mm. and after his wife died last year it was really the beginning of the end and it really went down here very quickly and um you know some very very sad times but you know, there was an interview with Stan that came out in, uh, you know, an online outlet of just a month ago, two months ago, and it was very clearly, you know, it was like him saying, "I'm, I'm ready to, to go to the next phase," yeah. and, um, you know, clearly it was time. But, um, you know, he did. But there's so many different phases to Stan's life. You know, Stan was 39 when Fantastic Four came out, so he yeah. already had what most people consider a full career before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously. After he left the hands-on editing of the comics, he went to Hollywood and, uh, you know, was yeah. the first ambassador trying to get these movies turned, you know, or these, these properties turned into movies and TV shows with really horrible results. And Stan was also a terrible deal maker and he would sign multiple deals with different studios. You know, now I don't know that I think Saner Heads came in, but, uh, you know, Spider-Man, uh, remains with Sony in perpetuity because of this bad deal. Now, I don't know that Stan made this bad deal, hmm. but it's certainly a holdover from those times where it's like, what? You want to make a movie out of Spider-Man? Oh, my God. This is the greatest yeah. thing. I can't believe this is happening. You Enough know? said. Enough said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that period went on for a while, and then probably with the, uh, you know, Stan got Stanley Entertainment. I mean, oh, my right. God. That is all. Stanley Media, this interesting internet startup yeah. from the CD-ROM era that was, you know, re- invested in by Peter Paul and, uh, you know, was yeah. involved with... Oh, well, there's he, such a know, story to tell. He had a lot of adventures. They weren't all very successful. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I don't think any of them were very successful. 
No. Marvel. Marvel was successful. <laughs> Marvel was that's, successful. That's what I'm saying. But, that's but, what I know, but creating a cultural landmark like I mean, that is enough for any one lifetime. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, let me, I got to throw a seat. This is so, in the wake of Stan's death, there has been a lot of discussion over Stan and Jack and Ditko. Oh, God, and, you know, yes. like some people have said he was a, you know, soul-sucking. You oh, know, yeah. I know some that. people in that camp. Yeah, you know, and there are some people who really hate Stan Lee. And, uh, but, you know, Kate, what I was just saying about how, uh, Stan, all he had was Marvel. You know, that's not true of Jack Kirby. I mean, Jack no, Kirby had his partner, Joe Simon, before, mm. but, you know, they created Captain America. They created tons of comics at Timely. They invented, you know, the Newsboy Legion. They mm. did romance comics. Then they went to, you know, Jack went to, after the comics code, he went to Marvel and did all that. And then we got fed up. He went to DC and yeah. created the New, New Gods, Gods yeah. which are like some of the yeah. most durable, yeah. if bizarre, yeah. um, you know, stories out of the whole DC thing. Yeah. And, you know, and then he kept on going. I mean, even his latest, I would take any of Jack Kirby's later in life creations uh, yeah, over I mean, Stanley wasn't the kind of artist that Jack Kirby or Steve Gitko was, but he wasn't, you know, he was an artist in his huckstering type of way. I mean, he had a he, skill for the modern media uh, uh, that helped Marvel and helped these artists. I think you should compare to, oh, I'm sorry, Kate, go on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think what he really was in many ways, was an editor and a PR guy at oh, the same yeah. time. And he had a great sense for what the public wanted and for how to get them to think it was what he was giving them. Um, you know, and and do I think that Marvel Comics could have been very similar in output without him and with the rest of the creators? Yeah, I think that's possible, maybe. But I don't think... I don't think it would have been the cultural dynamite that it was without Stan Lee's engine and ambition and hucksterism driving yeah. it. No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think I think there's there's two things about Stan Lee. I think that well, there's more than two, but two things relevant to what you just said, Kate, is that uh, he really was a good editor. There's no question but that he was a good editor and that he got great work out of the people he worked with also. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. I mean, a lot of the people who worked with him at Marvel did the best work of their career. And, you know, I wouldn't say that Kirby did the best work of his career because I he think he did his, great work. He did great work. I mean, I think his New God stuff from a visual standpoint is the equal, but mm-hmm. certainly it's the most lasting creations that he did with Stan. And uh, and everyone I've talked to who packed it with Stan over the years, who worked with him, said he was actually, you know, Stan was very blunt about not being able to see and not being able to hear anymore, which, you know, made it difficult for him to sit down and write. But, um, you know, people who worked with him, I mean, it's no secret that he had ghostwriters, but I mean, the people who yeah. worked with him said he was very involved and that he was very, you know, he gave good notes on and stuff. And everybody that I've talked to who has spent time working with him, they have nothing but praise for the mm-hmm. guy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people who work closely with him. Um, they People who but... work closely with him who did not work closely with him in the early days of the Yes, Marvel. thank you. Yeah. Thank now, you. And that's a good point, too. And I think we ought to talk about now. I mean, uh, if you want to look at a clear, unvarnished, raw uh, capitalism at its worst, you can look at the early days of the American comic book industry. And this is the world uh, that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby worked in. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a pretty place on the business side. And rights were something that were held like gold. And so, yeah, it was a nasty time. That's the time that he came out of. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I always got the feeling that Stan uh, spent a lot of time trying to sort of undo, perhaps, uh, some of the damage, some, some things in the past that while he didn't necessarily set out 
to steal anything from anybody. That kind of was how it was done. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, he seems to have spent a lot of time, uh, in the newer world of comics. Actually trying to give everybody the credit that they deserve. Yeah, and you know, listen, I've told this story many times before, but, uh, you know, when I met Stan, uh, I mean, I, I, I met him many times back at the San Diego cons of the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but the one time I met Stan, just this kind of fame was rising. And probably the last time I talked to him out, uh, uh, in person was, uh, you know, the signing. And this is, it was the early, it was like 2007 or 8, something mm. like that. But, um, and, you know, I had Jack Kirby sign my autograph book, so uh, I didn't know that Stan would be signing, you know, at every con in creation for the next 15 years. <laughs> yeah, so. but you didn't have to pay $200. Right. Well, I didn't anyway. I mean, I got, uh, you had to get a ticket, but I, yeah. you know, pulled my strings and I got it. But, um, uh, you know, I wanted to get him to sign the book. And so, you know, I went up to him and I said, you know, this is a little unusual. And I showed him the Jack Kirby thing. And, you know, he was signing with a ballpoint pen. And I said, ah, Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. And, and then he reached into his pocket and he pulled out his good pen. Ah. And he signed opposite, on the opposite page. Ah. And, you know, he was like, that was a great artist. And, there you go. You know, I mean, it was very, I mean, I, you know, listen, I don't, it was somebody who was Stan, the other thing that, you know, I just talked about Stan as a great editor, but really what he was, you guys, he was a performer. He was like a stand-up comic. You know what I'm saying? He was just like a personality. <laughs> I mean, that was his greatest, his greatest gift. Everybody yeah. loves to imitate Stan. I mean, there's no one who hasn't done a Stan sure. Lee as like. We've just been doing it here. Except Kate. She's too classy for that. I'm not too classy. It's just that I am post Stan Lee era. I'm in the era <laughs> where he, you know, would show up for five minutes in a comic book movie and it's not the days when, when Stan really trod the earth, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I, I just finished writing a piece. Uh, it's a, it's a kind of a tribute to Stan, uh, to Stan Lee. Uh, it's a combination of tribute to Stan Lee and attempt to get Marvel to talk about their book program, which actually worked. So, nice, uh, Calvin. I was nice. able to talk, uh, I, I, I uh, this week I did a, did a, had a great interview with Joe Casada, the Marvel's chief creative officer. Uh, former editor in chief, so he 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 sat in Stan's chair, and uh, and um, and he had nothing but great things and great memories, and uh, and just to follow up what you said, Heidi, he said, you know, the greatest character, and I've heard other people say this too, but the greatest character that Stanley ever created was Stanley mm -hmm. himself, mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, he said, but he said, I never saw any other kind of Stanley. You know, mm -hmm. he's like the first time I met him, he walked up and he shook my hand. He said, Joey, great to meet you. And, you know, he was, he said he was, uh, he left a blueprint for how he wanted us to work here. It still works. Uh, you know, he never disappointed. And, uh, you know, he's a key permeates the building here at Marvel. So, um, you know, uh, you know, I got no problem with Joe Casada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've said this before. I'm sure I said it on this podcast. I wrote it, but I'll just reiterate it one more time. It's like, you know, there are some people who legitimately, uh, you know, really resent Stanley and go on. And I certainly, you know, listen, he deserved all the praise he got because he was one of a kind. He was an absolute one of a kind personality and we shall not see his like ever again. Yeah. And I creative person. Yeah. And creative mm -hmm. person. I just, I am just feel sad that Jack Kirby did not live long enough to see the you know, to get the plaudits that he so craved in his lifetime, yeah. you know, and yeah. he, he deserved it. He deserved it and he and, craved it so badly. 
and it's just really sad that he didn't make it. He didn't yeah, make it this far. To not to see the really explosive, mm-hmm. uh, galaxy <laughs> girdling success yes. that these creations have given Marvel today. Right, absolutely. That, he, yeah. I mean, Jack Kirby deserved to see to see that, you know. Yeah. So, but he, you know, uh, I mean, Jack was loved and revered. Joseph, yes, he was. Don't get me wrong. No, of course. Um, but the kind of success that Marvel is seeing these days, I mean, the, what these movies have done for the Marvel brand, for these characters, I mean, uh, it's I'm hard to imagine. I'm glad Joe Simon lived as long as he did and got to see what he did. Yeah. 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 You know, although he had to sue Marvel, so, you know. Well, yeah, but he already <laughs> so did Kirby, that. I mean, you know. That's what they do, but at least he got to, to see the success of his creations. Right, right, right. No, it's true. Yeah. It's true. All right. So. Uh, well, on that note, um, and on that note, back to my. On that day. note, enough said. Yes, enough said. Um, uh, well, true believers. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, two, two, two of uh, really a pretty sad tale. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, Abrams canceled uh, a graphic novel this week, uh, and it's kind of hard to imagine what they were thinking but uh yeah they, a, a what they were thinking when they commissioned it in the first place uh, well, well i can uh, you know what i'd come yeah. i have i have yeah, an, I, but you, no, no no you go ahead and tell the story well, and then I, i'll throw in why yeah. yeah, well yeah. it's a book called uh, what is it a suicide bomber sits in the library uh <laughs> and it's by dan uh you know uh, dave mckean uh and uh, what's his name jack gantos the kids yeah kids. jack gantos yep yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard to know even how to describe this, but uh, as I understand it, the book describes some a young uh, Middle Eastern kid walks into some uh, library and some white librarian uh, impresses him. It says, "Here, kid, read read a book. Read Lemony Snicket." Yeah, yeah, that'll change your mind. I mean, look, I haven't read the book. I don't understand it. I think um, um, Zainab Akhtar. Yeah, uh, was one of the first people to kind of call it out on social media, and um, after some to and froing between uh, McKean and the Twitterverse, uh, Abrams decided that maybe people had. Well, it wasn't just that. I mean, yeah. it was like you know there was a a um, you know a, the thing you signed petition. <laughs> a petition. Yeah, sorry, right. that a thousand people had signed, yeah, okay. and, and you know just the. The mockery on, yeah. uh, you know what? Let me just read a little bit of that petition because I okay. think it really shows, uh, shows why this was such an, such a ill thought of. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I, I haven't the done book, it justice. The book, Please. The book depicts an illiterate child suicide bomber, although apparently the book the kid could read according to McKean, but anyway, yeah. but they didn't know that. An illiterate child suicide bomber, apparently a vague Middle Eastern or South Asian descent, who's deterred from his terrorist quote mission, unquote, when he sees other children reading in the library. According to text on the back of the book, the young suicide bomber has a quote, unquestionable duty to his beliefs. Unquote. As if his faith that compels him to be a terrorist, as if he must act in opposition to his faith to show humanity. The premise alone is steeped in Islamophobia and profound ignorance. Further, though the text refers to the characters as boys, the illustrations of brown-skinned individuals with receding hairlines and dark circles under their squinting, villainous eyes are dehumanizing and do not seem in any way childlike. Is this how Abrams believes Muslim, Middle Eastern, Arab, Pakistani children should see themselves? Or adults, for that matter? Is this the mirror that you hold up to them? Is this the window that you think creates empathy. Bam. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that's a much better expression than I did. Yeah, but you know what? So you <clears throat> asked what they were thinking. Now, G. Willow Wilson, who is a Muslim American, mm-hmm. uh, and she writes Ms. Marvel, mm-hmm. she put up a Twitter thread um, 
and I'll just quote a little bit, but she mentions uh, count that there's this thing called the CVE, Countering Violent Extremism yeah. Programs, where they're trying to reach out and create, you know, I will say propaganda. I mean, in the positive sense, there might be positive propaganda. Nobody mm. wants suicide yeah. bombers, let's face it. And, you know, people are recruited mm-hmm. for this. And also we make all... a more welcoming environment and make people feel yes. more at home in their community. Well... That's the I, idea. That's I would, the concept. Right. Yes, yes, that's yes. That's the concept. Yes, I'm not yes. saying that's what it does. Yes, I'm saying that's what they're that's going the goal. For. That's the yeah. goal for it. And so um, they, uh, you know, and Wilson mentions that she's always reached out to to write these kind of things. Obviously, they want her to bless them. Mm-hmm. And uh, But she points out that, uh, as is certainly the case in this book by two white Englishmen, the problem is that these people are so far removed from the communities, they are attempting to socially re-engineer that their, quote, strategies, unquote, are at best completely farcical BS and at worst blatantly harmful. Yeah. And, you know, listen, we talk about a lot of outrage on this podcast yeah. over the years. And, you know, some of it to me is ridiculous, like Spider-Woman's butt. But... The need for people from the community to write about the issues in, the, that in community. their community. I mean, it, or yeah. at least for someone to, oh, I don't know, consult with them as to what might be helpful strategies that people would like. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're you're doing this tinderbox topic, well, I mean, why don't you want to make sure that the people that supposedly you're you're trying to reach actually have some input into it, right? Um. Or are you so confident in your point of view that you can just sort of tell them what they need to know? Yes. This seems to be where yeah. we're where we're at in, the, in at this particular place. I mean, one of the things um, uh, a couple of months ago, or maybe it was a little bit longer than that, uh, there was a big sort of to do in the New York Times about sensitivity readers. Mm-hmm. I mean, an unfortunate Which is the worst term. name of it's all an time. unfortunate it's term. Like, you know, people what we're talking about skills. are proofreaders. Yeah. Okay. Consultants. Uh, yeah. You know that they're editors that look at a book as editors do all kinds of books um, to find out how to make them better books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, think about this, people. <laughs> uh, there's a reason. If you're writing about your own community, fine. Go take a chance. Uh, there's certainly plenty of things wrong with the old white guy community that could use some books about it. But, you know, you really should reach out to communities or maybe think about, you know, studying and getting some information and yeah. educating it's yourself a little bit. It's not that you shouldn't write about people other Absolutely. than yourself or places other than your own. But, but, but that you should you should just take a deep breath, step outside yourself for a minute and go, is this what I should, the way I should be writing this? And this is... Okay, this is where I'm going to say, yeah, this is not the first time. Although the last time it didn't involve suicide bombers and the rest of the internet didn't agree with me. But for the record, Craig Thompson's Habibi, still incredibly offensive. I you guys were like, I actually agree. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I thought that the artistry, uh, you know, uh, was it, uh, like outweighed some of the offensive uh, orientalism of yeah. it, but it's sort of, I, I didn't disagree that it was orientalist. I mean, well, I, I mean, totally wasn't, didn't it wasn't, disagree. It wasn't even just the like, oh, there's a harem and the girl gets out of the harem. It's that the uh, girl takes in a young boy, basically adopts him. He grows up, he becomes a eunuch, and then they get married. <laughs> and what this says about his idea of black and 
Muslim sexuality that the one good Muslim man is the one who is her son and also a eunuch <laughs> is I don't I don't I, I I don't even know man well you know that book hasn't aged very well you know, nobody yeah. Well, it wasn't. Well, I don't think it's that it didn't age well. I, I think it's that it wasn't right out of the box. And maybe if he had run his outline by someone who was like, maybe not make him her son and a eunuch. Maybe, maybe it would age well. Better. You know what's interesting is that when did Habibi come out? Like, well, I can't. Ten years ago? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, just in ten years, how long have we been it's doing been this a, podcast? It, it, like six years, seven than, years, six years. It was twenty eleven. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, so it was like seven years, seven ago. years. Uh, no, almost eight years ago. <laughs> no, because it was September 2011. Oh, okay. So it's yeah. so seven. And a, anyway, a long so time. like seven years. But anyway, you know, and we've, like I said, you know, I guess we've certainly become more sensitive just because of, and you know, yeah. this, I, I, I was saying this back then. Well, you were, and guess what? You're more evolved. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because everybody wasn't saying it back then. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but you know, maybe, maybe we should have been, I mean, I actually interviewed him about that book and, uh, I didn't raise these issues at the time. Um, so, but you know what? Maybe I should have. Well, you know, I think what happened with him is exactly what happened with this one, which is that he's a big name and the book was attractive. Yeah. That, yeah. that, 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 Bikin has a name to conjure with, partly due to his, you know, history with Sandman and a number of other notable books. And I would not put it past a publisher to see his name go, oh, you know, sounds great, and not think about it too hard. Because well, yeah, well, you well, you well I think have, that was part well, of the wait, reception. But as well. actually, I want to say there was some criticism. I mean, there was, but I will say McKean backpedaled. Like, yeah, he did he, actually because he said he was brought onto the project that it was more something that Gantos had written, and he really? was it wasn't his, no, it wasn't his project. He was yeah. brought on as an illustrator. But it's also look, you know, over the holiday Thanksgiving holiday, I was home watching. Uh, you know, Turner Classic Movies mm-hmm. uh, as you do mm-hmm. on Thanksgiving, and they had like you know, uh classic movies of the you know 60s New York childhood day and King Solomon's Mines and Gunga Din. I was like look I mean I'm 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 glad I'm somewhat you know open-minded in my whole life because I mean all the stuff that I was fed as a kid of course, was completely yeah. colonialist oh totally I mean like but, it's just I it, you know yeah. it's hard to watch all these of days. us yeah all <laughs> of us all of the us funny were. thing about Gunga Din, if you read the original is that it was the whole point is that the unreliable British colonial narrator, even he finally comes to the realization that Gunga Din is in fact a better person than he is. Yeah. I mean, at the time was revolutionary. Uh, I will, well, Kipling, we could do a whole podcast about, (laughs) and also Gunga Din, which is one of the greatest action movies ever made, even though it is colonialist as hell. Okay. But it's such a great movie. But, but but anyway, but, but I'm, I'm just saying it's like, you know, uh, I, I mean, these, these, we're gradually crawling out of the trough of these tropes, you know, but it's, it's very difficult because they're so pervasive. it, It bothers me more when it's something like Craig Thompson, because, in all the publicity for it, he was saying, you know, how much he loves Muslim culture and how he read up <laughs> well, on inver- it that's, and that's how enlightened he is. That's invariably what happens. And he traveled like, quite a bit there. And people, mm-hmm. and people writing articles about it were like, oh, how enlightened he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote his his magnum opus about another culture. Look how pretty it is. He gets the art right. Like, 
you know, it's it's easier to give a pass to things that are of their time to say, yeah, it's problematic, but I understand the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when well, the but context we're in a is, hey, it was 2008. Now. I mean, come on, yeah. it was so long ago. 2011. Oh heavens, 2011. Another time, another place. Um, there had but, only been know, like three Marvel movies out then, I Heidi. I know. Well, if you would yeah. do the well, anyway, we could talk about this all day. When you do the Marvel rewatch, and you know, like Tony yeah. Stark is clearly shown as a womanizer, and you know, you can't. Boy, that doesn't fly anymore. Yeah, let's put it that way. Well, it can. It just depends on the flavor of womanizer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's been canceled. It was scheduled to come yes. out in May 2019, uh, and it won't. But, uh, you know, listen, I, uh, and, uh, I thought that Abram's statement was a little sullen. Well. Yeah, it was. Well, they did the right thing. <laughs> they did do the right thing. They just didn't yeah. want to. But I, yeah, yeah I can they, read you their statement. I actually sure. have it right here. Abrams has decided to withdraw. This was a, a station on the uh, statement placed on the Abrams Tumblr. Uh, Abrams has decided to withdraw publication of the adult graphic novel. Now, there's some contention about whether it was a good uh, adult graphic novel, and there's uh, there's some evidence that they had originally really. marketed it as a kids graphic novel, but they uh, they they claim it was an adult graphic novel. Uh, um, which was, pu- was was to be published by Abrams Comics Art. While the intention of the book was to help broaden a discussion about the power of literature to change lives for the better, we recognize the harm and offense felt by many at the time when stereotypes breed division rather than discourse. Therefore, together with the book's creators, we have chosen to withdraw its release. Yeah, but I, I just... Like who thought this was a good? Who thought like, oh, look at the, look at the little suicide bomber kid. Look at him. If only he'd seen a book, he would. He wouldn't want to be violent. Oh, it's just. Well. Oh, but you know, then it's like this green room or this green book movie too. It's like, have you learned nothing from driving Miss Daisy? Yeah, I, you know, actually, I want to see that, though. I, I, I've heard the criticisms of yeah, it, but, but I do oh. want to hear it. I, I, I think, do want to see it. I think the general concept's not necessarily a bad one, but the execution sounds deeply lacking. Well, well I've heard it's kind of a, like a the driving Miss Daisy for the <laughs> for the 2018 set. Yeah. Um, Only race swapped. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. well, it's not really. I mean, it's, yeah, it is. I mean, no, it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It is being driven. Yeah, it is race swapped. It's the black one. Yeah. So, um... Uh, and, you know, the whole the racism is cute genre. Yeah. Well, um, you know, lessons learned. Yeah. Learn, anyway. lessons learned. All right. Uh, moving right along. Um, well, we've got a, a couple of more cons for the years out. Oh, yeah. Um, well, but we wrapped up, uh, though. This is the end of the, you know, yeah. I said... The, and here, well, there's one more. I'm going to it Sunday, but yeah, this is really the year's dragon to a close. And we had yeah. Comic Arts Brooklyn. Uh, Calvin yeah. and I were there. Should we do them in order? Let's see. I well, think Comic Arts Brooklyn was, was the first, first one. That's and why that, I uh, mentioned it first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then so, followed um, by Anime yeah. NYC. But yeah, Calvin and I went to Comic Arts Brooklyn, yeah. which is the indie show. Yeah. Yes, it held is. Held in Brooklyn. Yes, it is. And um, so yeah, it yeah. was great. Yeah, it returned uh to uh the Pratt Institute campus, which is a Fabulous location for the show. Uh, it's relatively easy to get to. You think? Wait, how'd you get there? I got there on the train. The G? Yeah. I took the train. I got off and I walked to the well, campus. Well, there's no L. Like, Well, the L's going to make a difference. But, I mean, I took the G there and got there and it wasn't, right. wasn't that hard to me. I mean, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, it was pretty easy for me. Um, and there was an awful lot of people there. Yeah. And it's also was held on a Sunday for the very first time. 
Uh, it took a little, I think, you know, I, I talked with Gabe Fowler, who directs the show and owns uh, Desert Island Comics. And, um, you know, it took a little bit longer in the day, but by the time I got there, which was about two, three o'clock in the afternoon, it was packed. Yeah. Um, on a Sunday morning, not bad. Well, um, you, you know, they wanted to make it a two day show, but they couldn't. Yeah. Uh, is what because was there. there was a basketball game there. It's held in a gymnasium. Oh, that's right. And there yeah. was a basketball game the day before. Ah, so, yeah. so that's and interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I asked Gabe about that and, um, he, because a lot of, I, I did hear some complaints that they didn't think Sunday was as good as Saturday. Yeah. So. Mm. All right. Yeah. He seemed to be pleased when I talked to him. Yeah. He seemed to be pleased with it, but, uh, I actually didn't know. He didn't mention to me about the, um, the basketball game. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but yeah, um, you know, it, as usual, the show, uh, it's a small show, but they have some, some pretty impressive guests. Julie Doucet was there. Um, trying to think of all of the others. Oh, well, Jim Woodring was there. Uh, Jim with Woodring, giant yeah. pen, which I got mm-hmm. to use. They had the pen. You had a sign up. Uh, yes, you know, I saw you know, the pen. You know, Jim yes. Woodring is like one of our premier fabulists, yes. I would say. Uh, just his work is stunning. And he, uh, early days of Kickstarter is one of the first Kickstarters that I supported uh-huh. where he, uh, raised money to construct a, a giant, um, dip pen. And <laughs> for, you know, just because I think people, humans have to really push the boundaries. And they had made a giant pen. And, uh, so then they had a sign up sheet and you could sign up and use the giant pen. And, uh, I did. I, <laughs> and I saw you. Yeah. Yes. And I, I have the art. And it's very <laughs> heavy. Like you quickly become very fatigued in moving it. But the line is very smooth. Uh-huh. It really has the, this great flow. It's very, very, um, well constructed. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually got a chance, uh, to get the new publication by the mysterious Al Columbia. Yeah. I, oh, I met him actually. Yeah. He yeah. I there. did too. I was, yeah. Yeah, I got him to sign it. Um, so, uh, uh, Hartley Lynn of Young Francis fame was there, uh, PW Best Book of the Year. Uh, Charles Burns was hanging out there. Um, Richie Pope of, uh, Ignat's Winner for, you know, that, that little comic, The Box We Sit On, is an absolute delight. Have you, I, I'm sure you've read yeah, it. It's it is a, it's, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Uh, cause I hadn't, I didn't, I mean, I didn't get it down there. I bought it from him. In fact, I think they were sold out at SBX. So I, and so I bought it from, from him right at the, uh, at the, at the show. So Cab continues on. Um, uh, Gabe tells me he's doing some things with, uh, you know, um, inviting people, swapping tables if they'll to pay their own travel to get foreign cartoonists there. Mm-hmm. And he says some other groups that he would like to bring. So, um, so far, so good. Maybe, maybe they'll be able to go back to two two days next year. Yeah. Well, I mean, he said that there were weekends that he could do two days, but he felt this was the only weekend that made sense because the next weekend was too close to Thanksgiving, uh-huh. and then he didn't want to have it in December, and then the other one was too yeah. close to something else. So you know, I mean, it's hard. This uh, planning show schedules is very hard. Yeah. So, no, but yeah, yeah, I mean, this the, the the variety there there was. I I did a big debuts piece where I got to spotlight a lot of new cartoonists, and there's always mm. great people. And yeah. um, yeah. you know, yeah. I yeah. love Cab. It really yeah. the Pratt campus is gorgeous, and uh, now it's not hot and sweaty. It's really kind of cold and mm. foreboding, but in a fun way. And speaking <laughs> of the new cartoonists, you know, I just stumbled. This is purely by accident. I stumbled in and I on the work of Kelsey Roten. Do you, are you familiar with her? Uh oh, no. No, well, is it, is she did that book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It might be, it might be the next Monsters. It might be the, the next, we're going to see because she was selling a book from Pyrite Press called Crimes, which was a really interesting same sex 
um, graphic fiction about two women who were some of the most intensely articulate characters. You, I mean, if you, I mean, women talking about emotional issues is intense, and when they're in love with each other, it's intense on a level that few of us can actually cope with. <clears throat> but anyone was, who has seen a lesbian breakup knows of okay. okay. <laughs> then there you go. Then you know it's they a are and hilarious. It's, so I actually I bought this because I just looked at it. and I liked her drawing, and she was very charming. And I bought it and read it, and I was like, "Wow, my head is spinning." Uh, and turns out she's publishing it also, which is going to be part of my announcement issue. She's got a book coming from Uncivilized next. Nice. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, called Cannonball. I can't wait to see it. Great. Um, uh, it's about a self-proclaimed, um, queer torture genius. So, there you go. Ah, the self-proclaimed torture oh, genius. Oh, yes. <laughs> the torture So genius. I'm well, looking to be, forward to, to it. To be fair, comics are full of many books about, uh, self-proclaimed torture geniuses. And so, you know, this just broadens the field. Yeah, so. To new, new demographics. Great place, uh, to, to really to find new books and new cartoonists. It really yeah. is. So. And then so you two went yes. off to Anime. Anime NYC. Anime NYC. Now, yes, well, you, you want to chime in? I mean, I've got some interesting thoughts about yeah. Anime NYC. I, I think, let's put it this way. First off, before I say anything else, I want to say that Anime NYC was delightful. Yes. That it was a million times easier to get into than New York Comic Con. I mean, physically. Well, yeah. Uh, and, but yet, I mean, yes, it was a smaller con, but it felt like a full-size convention. Oh, yeah. It was not a mega con, but it was it was no. a full-size living, breathing anime mm-hmm. convention, and it, it, it was the real deal. Yeah. Um, Thirty six thousand fans. Yeah, double uh, double what it got last year. Yeah, dear listeners, if you like anime and you're in New York and you can afford the entrance fee, I highly recommend you go because it's awesome. But there definitely are some signs that uh, how we put this, it lacks something because. It's not in the country that most of its material comes from. So this means that since it's not one of the premier anime shows in the country yet, yeah. someday yet. it yet, yet, <laughs> someday it may well be, um, that y- you don't really get any mangaka there hardly. You don't. You, you don't. don't. You, not, not yet. Not yet. There were a couple, but it, yeah, not yeah, a lot. No, not hardly any. I'm not saying none. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah, saying yeah. hardly yeah. any Japanese manga creators will come. And so what you get are voice actors, which is fine, mm-hmm. and a few well-known in manga pundits, which, I mean, cool, I guess, and, um, you know, some J-pop stars, which uh, definitely that's a big get, mm-hmm. more than last year. But it does mean that mostly it's people, like, showing previews of things to come, which is great. Showing screenings of things that have already come out, mm-hmm. also great. Selling things, which they were amazing at. More <laughs> on that of, later. There was a lot of stuff being sold, yes. And <laughs> people just telling each other how much they love anime, which is fine. But it, it really felt more like a fan convention in some ways than a professional convention. Mm-hmm. It, it, it felt like a, a convention for anime fans, not the anime industry. Was it f- Better than anime 
Uh, yes, you're, you're approaching the, uh, yeah, the 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 issue here. Yes, uh, anime at NYCC. Uh-huh. Yes, it's better. Yes, okay. and but I will say that there, there's one thing that really impressed me in comparison with New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Their show floor was superb. Ooh, that all the vendors that when I went around New York Comic Con this year and I went. Where are all those wonderful mid-range vendors with these creative, wonderful imports and, and homemade goods and, and art and just stuff made by creative nerds that makes it such a glorious joy to shop at a big con? Where is all this stuff? I've got like, I see about half as much as last year and I see more like random back issue dudes. I don't know if maybe they went to Anime uh, Fest at NYCC and they were just they just split the floor, or if um, the anime-based people felt marginalized and just decided they weren't going to come work as vendors. But I was like, I honestly had a better con floor experience per square foot than I did near Comic Con. I felt like there was less like you mean just, the, the New York. Oh, you mean. At New York Comic Con, not no. at Anime f- at no. NYC. No. So, I, I specifically meant the show floor. Okay. Not anything else. The show floor for its size. Yeah. Like, remember, I'm, I'm thinking, like, per, I said square, per square foot, meaning, like, if you made one floor the same size as the other floor, which floor would you like better? Mm. I would like the Anime NYC yeah. floor mm-hmm. better. I think it was just better. Mm hmm. Uh, for the size it was. Um, because I feel like this year's New York Comic Con was show floor was not up to their usual standard. It was larded out with a lot of like random Funko Pop sellers and back issue people. <laughs> and it just wasn't, it just wasn't as good as usual. Whereas Anime NYC, for its other flaws, and it had some, had a wonderful show floor. And their, their artist Sally was, about as good as you could possibly get, in my opinion, for a show in a country where the original creators will not go, at least to a show of this size. So, yeah. I mean, I, I live in hope that it will become a larger show where we can attract some actual manga creators in any numbers. But uh, for what it was, I thought it was excellent. The only thing was, dear listeners, as you may have noticed, I didn't have any interviews this year. Um, the wonderful people in their press booth did let me come in and did le- let me stash my stuff and did let me sit down, but uh, and have free water, but <laughs> but, but they were not good at communicating with me about whether or not I got my interviews. So I was like, do I have interviews? Do I not have interviews? I don't know. I guess I'll just show up and find out. Spoiler alert: I did not have interviews. Uh, well, you know, I, I certainly there was certainly plenty of stuff to buy. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm hoping that there's more publishers. There were yeah. there were a fair number of publishers. I mean, Viz was there for the first time because they apparently weren't on the floor last year. A lot um, of anime. Um, yeah, Vertical was there. Kodansha was there. Yen Press was there. They were selling quite a few stuff. Um, the 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 webtoon, uh, Tappy Toon. They were there on the floor, actually selling print versions of their web, yeah. their web comics. They had a large um, booth. Uh, Udon was there. Uh, I, I, I talked with Eric Coe a little bit. He, he, he brought, he brought their, um, manga adaptations of classics. He had about 15. Did, did you mention Rosa Versailles to him? 
I did not mention Rosa. I did not mention Rosa Versa. Um, <laughs> I don't think he had that there. You know, he was actually he was selling the manga classics line. He they've got about fifteen titles in that in that line. He yeah. brought them all. He sold out every single awesome copy. So, you guys, was there a good crowd there? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. There was. I mean, it was twice the size of last year, mm-hmm. crowd wise. Yeah. yeah. Thirty-six thousand. Um, oh wow! Really? Yeah. Wow! Yeah. I would say the percentage of people in cosplay was smaller than a New York Comic Con, but what there was was good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it was it was a very happy show. You didn't get like the frustration of like I can't get anywhere. Well, that that was a really that's a really good point because y- you could move around. You could move around easily, and the aisles were the right size for the crowd. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's going to ch- – well, I think next year the aisles will still be good, but it's going to change. And this show is going to get be- be- uh, bigger. bigger. Uh, it took up about a third of the main floor. Oh, really? That's uh, good. So that's not bad. That's not bad. It's not I mean, bad at all. No, I mean, from what I understood, last year they had the same space, but they were much smaller in that third. They weren't as well laid out yeah. last year. Next year uh, they're going to take up two-thirds mm-hmm. of the main floor. They're going to double oh, their wow. space. To about can they sustain that? I'm not sure they can yet. Well, Uh, I I, think that they'll be. I think they will. I think think they will. Yeah, I mean, even not going, just hearing you guys talk about it and knowing the people involved, I think that they will. I mean, because mm -hmm. honestly, uh, just you know, as observer, Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to uh, was it called now Anna Faye Fest at NYCC by Anime Expo. Yeah, yeah, Festy, whatever, Pier 94, that that stuff. Uh, and you know that was really crap. We all admitted it. But uh, yeah, it was a bad. But it was a bad show. And uh, look, I said this. I said this about other things that Reed does. You know, Peter Tatara and Greg Tapalian, who run Anime NYC, used to work for Reed Pop. Oh yeah. And Reed Pop used to have a ma- there used to be a manga show, and then it got yeah. smaller and smaller. Yes. And they shut it down. And then Peter and Greg said, "We'll put on our own show." And then yeah. suddenly it was good. New York Comic Con yeah. was like, "We must partner with Anime Expo and do this." Little Pier ninety two yeah. thing. So you know, I mean, it's pretty pretty clear what happened there. But but Reed Pop does that with other things too. It's like well, they it, they abandon a business, then somebody else picks it up, and then, yeah. then they want it back again. They said, "Oh, I guess you better do this." It's, it's very <laughs> Wait, strange. You mean situation. someone else can make money on it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, then we better try again. Just, we've talked we we yeah. talked a lot about this, and we should we've but yeah, we're just running one on. Quick but thing is that yeah. this show is going from one hundred thirty six thousand square feet to, to nearly three hundred thousand mm. feet next Quite year. Quite a jump. Um, I think what's going happen it's going to be a little sparse next year but the following year you're going to see it fill fill it up you know it's only going to get bigger you know we just saw uh you know there's been so many announcements this week that are out but you know like neon genesis evangelions coming to netflix Mm -hmm, and then they're also doing a live action version of cowboy bebop which is really stupid um (laughs) and then they're doing an anime version of blade runner or something i don't know i mean it's just you know obviously j-pop and anime style is um well, it's very popular in the streaming era, and I think we're going to see these events get bigger. Well, it's not just that. It's because anime is an international phenomenon, and Netflix has become an international yes. company yes. that if they create an anime or anime-based product, it will not only – if they do it right, it will not only sell in the Western world, it will sell in Asia. Yeah. And, you know, that's a big market. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I'm glad it was a good show. Uh yeah, I yeah, I had a good time. And n- now, the briefs with special <laughs> brief host Calvin. Okay. Calvin, take All it away. Right. I got a quick one here. Uh you know, we we were talking a few weeks ago about um 
DC's plans for Black Label after the Batman uh, damned debacle, um, and whether or not they were going to continue uh, with their plans to create this label that you would uh, celebrated authors would come in and do out of continuity original graphic novels about the classic characters. Well. Uh, apparently, um, they're going to put that behind them. Um, uh, DC has decided actually to move some of its classic graphic novels to be published in their new editions under Black Label. So uh, they're moving Watchmen um, under uh, to the Black Label imprint. They're moving Paul Pope's Batman Year 100. They're moving Darwin's Cook's The New uh, Frontier. And and a bunch more stories. Uh, and, Kingdom yeah, Come. Yeah, most importantly, like the classic, uh, you know, Killing Joke, Dark Knight Kill, Returns, yes, all of the yes, oldies, golden oldies that uh, uh, really inspired. They're just drowning well they it. They're, they're drowning it in a sea of classics. Yes. And um, so, as you may remember, listeners, um, the new, well, was to have been new, Darth Vader comic was called Shadow of Vader, and it was to be written by Chuck Wendig, who wrote three issues, which did not come out, and then he got fired by Marvel for being excessively outspoken politically, using some foul language to do so. And uh, this caused a lot of consternation on the internet. Uh, People felt this was an unfair firing in many cases. But Shadow of Vader kind of hung in the balance, because the question was, well, okay, he wrote three issues. Will someone write the rest? Like, and who, who will be the person who, who steps into this role? And the answer is, no one. They have canceled the book. It will never see print. It has vanished into the ether. Uh, they're just putting this behind them and pretending it never happened. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> Fun time. <laughs> now, now, listeners, what makes this especially exciting I and guess fun? We just got erased. <laughs> yeah, is 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 that um, Chuck Wendig is a literally New York Times best-selling author with his Star Wars books. Like every wow. single one of them has been a hardcover bestseller fiction book. So for Marvel to just ditch this guy because of his Twitter, and then to like not even publish the three issues they have. Is a little strange as a business decision, but okay. Um, And in other controversy news, the Dead Rabbit Bar in New York (laughs) is suing the Dead Rabbit comic by Image Comics. Because there's a New York bar named Dead Rabbit whose shtick is that their menus are a comic. And every... All their new seasonal menus is a new issue of this comic, and then you can buy the comic on Comixology, I think. Or you can buy it online, and I believe Comixology. That's interesting. And so they already had this trademark as a comic. The image, I guess, either didn't Google or blew it (laughs) off because it was a restaurant menu and we're image, and decided they were going to have a comic by the same title. And so they got sued for $2 million. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think they don't actually want $2 million. They just want them to retitle the book. Yeah. Well, but, they'll, they'll get paid off. It's a nuisance suit. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, you're right. Image walked right into it. Um, supposed to do a trademark search for that kind of thing. Um, so <laughs> and now, now uh, preview issues of the Dead Rabbit comic uh, from Image and actual issues of the Dead Rabbit comic 
menu are both selling for exorbitant prices on the <laughs> internet because capitalism. Yeah, you gotta love it. There you go. And uh, one one more fun weird news of the internet is that, um, so we know that the Japanese government and Japanese manga publishers have been pushing hard to avoid plagiarism and piracy on the internet, but now they have started to crack down on manga spoiler videos. Yes, that's right. <laughs> videos in which people say or just type the words of spoilers for manga issues, not even with any images, uh, are, are there's an attempt to crack down on them on YouTube, and they have been told to reveal IDs of these dastardly posters who are posting illegal manga excerpts. It's about that it for this show, everything. but uh, folks, if you've listened this far, shame, please. Shame, shame, shame. Uh, uh, yeah, well, there certainly is on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> Drop us a line. Send oh, us well, a comment. there you go. Send us a tweet. Yes. Um, tell us what you think. Yeah, you know, we'd love to get feedback. Yeah. We'd love to hear from your, our listeners. All right. Well, what's our reunion show? So, yeah. uh, I guess there will be more to come.